This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week, the Bunker team's look at the week ahead. I'm Ros Taylor and with me is Yasmin Serhan, a staff writer at The Atlantic. Hi, Yasmin. Good morning, Ros. There's one big story in town, I'm afraid. It's the new COVID variant, Omicron. And no one knows yet just how infectious or serious it will be and whether vaccines will continue to stop serious cases. Although we are getting some slightly more optimistic early evidence this today. Yasmin, why has it been named Omicron? So yeah, some very astute observers had noted that, you know, if we're going in order of the Greek alphabet, which is this sort of system that the World Health Organization had put in place in part to prevent countries and populations from being demonized. If, if everyone remembers, we used to call things the, the Britain variant, the, the South Africa variant, I don't know, all, all those variants, which are now kind of just a distant memory in my mind. But anyway, we, we moved to the Greek alphabet and technically the next one should have been new and new um, after the, the Mu variant, which I think was from identified earlier this year. Clearly, I don't think we've talked much about that. So probably not as much of a variant of concern. But yeah, so more astute observers, I think on Twitter and elsewhere noted that we technically should be calling this the new variant. And some even theorized that the reason that we weren't calling it the new variant was not to offend a certain Chinese leader to, to kind of have a variant uh, erroneously tied to his name. Um, and actually, you know, they weren't far off. The World Health Organization did release a statement to the Associated Press. And what they effectively said was that the reason that they skipped these two Greek letters, uh, the first being that new sounded a bit too similar to the English word new, which could cause a bit of confusion, though it is technically the newest variant that we know of. And see, for the, for the same reason, not to offend people, they said it was a common last name, um, which I'm sure is true. Um, but I think there, there may have perhaps been one particular holder of the surname that they were concerned about offending. So they skipped to Omicron. So we're a bit later in the Greek alphabet than perhaps we would have expected. But that's why we're here now. Yeah, I can see that once the new new variant comes along, then new would have been a problem because we had it would have had a new variant that wasn't new. Oh, God. Anyway, um, so Israel, Japan and Morocco have already effectively closed their borders. Uh, but it's clear that Omicron has already meet, reached much of Europe and mm. the testing rules in the UK have been tightened for people coming in. And anyone who's a close contact of an Omicron case will have to self-isolate, regardless of whether they're vaxxed. Of course, this isn't, isn't having much of an effect now, but we can surely bet that in a few weeks time, it is going to be ruining Christmas for a lot of people. And that includes school children, of course, who are back in the situation they were before. Yasmin, did you share my dread on hearing this news? I just didn't go on Twitter all weekend because I could not really bear the constant uncertainty and speculation. Oh, yeah. I mean, con like I think near instant anxiety. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. When when the statement happened, I remember watching it and thinking, God, I, I really hope they bring back masks. Like, you know, just the easiest things that we can do to curb transmission. But when they did say about close contacts having to self-isolate, it just brought back memories of the pandemic that I'm sure we all remember not too fondly. I think I was pinged at least at least once. I think it was maybe twice, but the second time I was vaccinated. So, so I didn't have to isolate after getting a PCR test. But yeah, I mean, you know, Chris, Christmas is around the corner. I'm due to fly home to the United States in a couple of weeks. 
my British partner who has only just been allowed to fly back to the U.S. after a very long while is supposed to come with me. So yeah, it's very concerning. You know, I'm I'm on the one hand scared that I'm going to get pinged and may have to self-isolate. On the other hand, I'm scared that the U.S. might decide, oh, you know, if the situation gets bad in the U.K., maybe we'll shut those borders again. So no, it's a, it's a very anxious time for a lot of people. And I think it obviously doesn't help that the holidays are, are nearing. And yeah, I mean, coronavirus is the ultimate Grinch, isn't it? A lot of experts warned that a more dangerous variant could easily emerge in partly vaccinated populations. And that indeed has happened. What is the situation in South Africa? So yeah, the situation in South Africa, I mean, frankly, is we're not happy to hear about this new variant, but I don't think it was exactly surprising. Um, you know, the fact remains that in many parts of the, of the world, and, and Africa is included, vaccination is, is still quite low. The biggest reason for that, is, as far as I'm aware, is the fact that, you know, vaccine distribution just hasn't been equitable around the world. Wealthy nations continue to dominate the lion's share of, of the available vaccines. I know from my previous reporting that um, our vaccine production is improving by the day, you know, still in places like South Africa and like many of its neighboring countries that I think have also been added to, to some of the travel restrictions. Uh, vaccination is still quite low. And in South Africa, I think that the fully vaccinated population is just under a quarter, I think around 23% maybe of the population. Um, part of that, I think, is, is due to, to access to vaccines. But I think a part Part of it also, I mean, you know, just like in, in wealthy countries in the West, you, you see vaccine hesitation and a lack of vaccine confidence, which is often uh, driven by a distrust in, in government as well as disinformation. Um, you know, those make an, an, an unhelpful combination. What we're seeing around the world, and it really shouldn't have been too much of a surprise that a new variant would emerge in this way. Um, I think what we're kind of waiting to find out is, is this another Delta? Is this kind of the situation that we've seen in India? And will countries be moved to take more action? Because if you remember when, when Delta emerged, emerged out of India. India was in the midst of a pretty huge crisis. And a lot of countries, I, I think, to their credit, really jumped in, you know, we're donating oxygen, we're donating vaccines. Um, whether we see this similar sort of steps with South Africa, I think remains to be seen. Credit where credit is due to scientists in South Africa who very quickly sequenced this new variant and shared what they learned with the WHO. Um, I think they shared it, I want to say, maybe last week and then, um, you know, by the end or week before last. And then by the end of that week, the WHO had had issued um, their statement about this new variant of concern. So they acted very, very quickly. And even though, as we've established, Omicron has already popped up in, in various countries, I, I think it's to their credit um, that they alerted us as quickly as they could so that we could hopefully try to stop it in its tracks while we learn more about it. Yes, particularly as they must have known what would happen and indeed did happen that countries would close their borders with South Africa and their tourism industry would be completely wrecked for the time being. So it's, it is it is a, an awful warning if you do have one of these variants, what will happen now to you? I think one of the concerns here, and I think it's just worth stressing really quick, is that, you know, one thing that we don't want to do, and the WHO has said this as well, is disincentivize countries from being as quick as South Africa was, is sort of sending the message that, you know, if you alert the world to this new variant of concern that you might be punished um, or face retaliation. I think that's a message that they're really trying to combat. Um, and, you know, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of pushback against some of the travel restrictions that we're seeing. So it'll be, it'll be curious to see, you know, if other countries follow suit apart from the ones that already have and how long those will last. Yes, and to end this section on a slightly more positive note, although it does seem to be more infectious as far as we can tell, Omicron does not, with the evidence so far, appear to be more serious. There are not large numbers of vaccinated people being hospitalised, for example. So that at least is something to hold on to. 
In non-COVID news, uh, Germany has a new coalition government under the next president, Olaf Scholz. Tell us about it. Yes. So yeah, after two months after his election, I think, uh, Germany has finally greenlit its widely anticipated traffic-like coalition. Um, so this is the first uh, center-left government that Germany is going to have in, I think, around 16 years. Um, and as you mentioned, it's going to be led by um, Olaf Scholz of the Social Democrats. Olaf Scholz is, is a very familiar face in Germany. Um, and, and that's partly due to the fact that the Social Democrats were the junior partner of Merkel's conservatives for a large part of her tenure, um, to say the least. Um, so, you know, certainly I was in Germany um, in kind of the final stretch of the campaign, and he by far seemed to be the most personable, the most um, kind of, weirdly enough, the, the person most seen to kind of be the continuation of Merkel. Um, so popular she is that people were really just looking for someone that would kind of carry on the way she did. I, I think in a lot of ways, we're not anticipating Germany to change a lot, in ter- at least in terms of its position in, in the world um, and, and the role that it plays. There will be some interesting changes. I mean, I think at first it's important to say that this isn't just going to be the Social Democrats. It's going to be a coalition of them, the Green Party and the pro-business Free Democratic Party. I think this is the first time that Germany has had a three-party coalition. They're usually used to two. So this is a few more, there's one more ball that the, the government will be juggling in terms of um, kind of, you know, finding policies that work for all the shareholders. And I think that's really crucial too, because I know certainly during the election, there was a concern that while these three parties do share a lot of interests, uh, you know, the Greens are obviously very pro-environment. They want to kind of potentially tackle um, the country's sort of car industry, the, the Free Democrats want to obviously get rid of regulation. They're, they're a bit more libertarian. Uh, but there are a lot of things that these three parties agree on. Um, and, and these are some of the changes that I think we can anticipate when they come into government, I think sometime early next month. They want to liberalize Germany's archaic citizenship laws. Um, they want to streamline immigration. They want to improve gay and transgender rights. They want to lower the voting age to 16, which I thought sounded really cool. They want to legalize marijuana. Um, and, and uh, you know, in, in terms of foreign policy, uh, Annalena Baer of the Green Party, their new foreign minister signaled that she wants to be a bit more confrontational with China and Russia. This government may also, I think, is, is more supportive of taking a tougher stance on Poland and Hungary. So yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, it'll be very interesting. It'll be a, a lot of the same, but I think some maybe tonal differences that that'll be really interesting to look out for. But I think the first and probably biggest challenge facing this new government, of course, is COVID and Omicron which is present in Germany right now. Back to Britain, there are rumours of a U-turn on the care bill, which got a lot of criticism in the last couple of weeks for taking away far more money proportionately from people with fewer assets, i.e. a house that's worth less than with a house that's worth more. Is this a sign that Tory MPs are beginning to take levelling up seriously, Yasmin? I think so. I mean, I think that was evidenced by the fact of, you know, so many Tory MPs, um, you know, not not enough for it not to pass, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, but many abstained and or, or voted against the bill. Every time that happens, I just recall that that one famous time that with Brexit, that Tory MPs um, rebelled uh, against their own government and, and some of them were sacked or kicked out of the party. That was many, it feels like a lifetime ago, but you know, it always kind of feels like a pretty big moment when the government kind of loses some of its own members in a vote. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this is potentially a sign that, that Tory MPs are taking leveling up seriously, but I also think it's indicative of just how unpopular this policy is around the country. There was a really interesting report in The Guardian earlier today that found that over two thirds of the public oppose the plans 
and that, in fact, leave voters were just as likely as remain voters to oppose um, Boris Johnson's changes to social care funding. So um, and, and a large swath of those voters are kind of those labor turned Tory voters um, in the last election. So I, I think there is some genuine concern, too, also for their own seats um, and, and their own kind of standing in parliament. Um, if they came in to, to sort of see leveling up happen, then they, they might uh, fear potential retribution from voters if, if they see this go ahead. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Refugees are still trying to cross the channel, even after last week's tragedy. Apparently, some of the children, the Guardian says today, are ending up in hotels. It's not just, I mean, I think it was a staggering amount. 250, I think, was the estimated unaccompanied child asylum seekers um, were being put up in in hotels uh, along the south coast of England, which, you know, I think is perhaps understandably quite shocking um, is how children's society described it. You know, th- these are kids who, who faced um, obviously just an, an incredible ordeal, but but who also just need support and security. And it's, I think it's really unclear what kind of help and attention they're getting, especially in a context like that, the, the type of care and supervision that, that children would need, vulnerable children indeed would need after that kind of experience. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's quite a lot of concern. And I think there was even reports um, that, you know, several children had, had gone missing from these hotels. So yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's needless to say this, this whole ordeal, I think is obviously really shocking and, and distressing. Um, and, you know, I, I just keep thinking back to sort of what it takes for someone to make that kind of journey. You know, I don't think people take those risks unless they feel like they don't have any other choice. Um, and, you know, obviously this is, this is a concern, you know, for, for, for the French government, for, for the British government. Um, but, you know, and, and I think they, they obviously kind of take their own concerns into account. But I think when it comes to just dealing with, with the people kind of as they are and sort of, you know, trying to get them the help they, they need is, is so fundamental. And, you know, I, I don't envy the government's challenge in, in doing all that. But yeah, the, with, with children in particular, I, I think it's just, yeah, it's, it, shocking was the word that I think was reported um, or was quoted most, most often in, in, in the sort of press reports that I had seen about the story. Um, and, and yeah, it really is. It's, I don't think people really think of unaccompanied children as being among those who are on these boats, but they are. Yeah, and it is terrible to think of children leaving these hotels and wandering about in sub-zero temperatures at the moment and what on earth is happening to them. In America, Mark Meadows, Trump's final chief of staff, could be charged with criminal contempt of Congress. What would that mean in practice? Yeah, so we've we've already seen this happening. Um, we've already seen this happen to Steve Bannon. This was actually quite a big deal because, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, this you know, it's it's very rarely that that Congress will issue um, this kind of charge, which I believe, if if convicted, does face um, a bit of jail time. And it all comes down to the fact that former President Donald Trump has directed the likes of Mark Meadows, but but also others that he's worked with, not to comply with the subpoenas that have been issued by the Democratic-led uh, House Select Committee that is investigating the January 6th insurrection and sort of the events that led up to it. 
so what, what we're seeing right now is is the I think the the select committee really flexing its muscles and showing how far it's willing to go to get people to cooperate with them. I, I believe it's the first time in, when Bannon was issued with this with this contempt charge. Um, I think that was the first time in decades that that has happened. There's an important distinction though between Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon. Both I believe have cited executive privilege effectively that effectively that they don't need to speak about their conversations with the president or his team for that reason. That didn't work so much. At least I think it was probably less convincing, at least from my view, for Steve Bannon, because he'd been out of the White House for, for I think, many years by that point. Mark Meadows, however, that that was not the case. So it'll be interesting to see what decision they, they come with. But I think if they if he has found or charged with, with criminal contempt of Congress, I, I think that will be a pretty strong indicator that um, the House Select Committee is really taking these subpoenas seriously and is, is really going to fight hard for, for more people to come forward um, so, so that we can kind of just know the full extent of what led to January 6th. I have a hunch that although Trump is banned from the social media networks, so people who don't support him effectively don't have to hear from him very much anymore, his hold on his supporters is still very great. And we are possibly underestimating how, how big it is. Do you think that's right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, it's not just his supporters. I think his hold on the Republican Party is pretty well established. You know, these are lawmakers within the party are still kind of, you know, very much pitching themselves as Trumpian, um, as, as sort of the, the successors to to his legacy. So yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't underestimate the level of sustained support he has, particularly among his supporters. I mean, look, grievance is one hell of a drug. And I think especially coming up to, to the midterms and next year in 2022, but more crucially, the next presidential election in 2024, whether or not Trump runs. I think that whole message about the big lie, the fact that the election was, you know, the erroneous claim that the election was stolen from him and all that, you know, I think that's going to be a really big part of pushing voters to go out and to vote and to support him. Um, you know, I, I think it's still up in the air whether he runs. I think a lot of people are anticipating that he might but nevertheless, I think he he continues to I think ha- have a pretty significant hold on on the party and indeed on on its voters. So um, he's gone away on social media, but he hasn't really gone away. I think as even this investigation shows. And finally, Stephen Sondheim died at the weekend. Were you a fan? I yeah. I mean, I was. I- I think I, when I was just reading the tributes to him, I mean, I will say that I'm not much of a musical buff um, in, in any significant way, but I don't think you really have to be to kind of uh, to appreciate Sondheim's work or to have been touched by it at, at one point or another. Like, I'm a big fan of Sweeney Todd um, and, and you know, and, and, and obviously there's West Side Story and just countless others. I, I think it was really moving to kind of to, to read some of the tributes to him, particularly from, from people that I, I am like, you know, I think ha- have been huge fans of such as Lin-Manuel Miranda and, and, and many others. One of the things that did stand out to me, there was this tweet by a journalist who, who talked about how Sondheim's genius phase began when he was 40. So, you know, I think at 41, he had Follies, at 43, A Little Night Music, 49, he was, uh, I think, 49 when Sweeney Todd came out. So um, I think if anything, it was just kind of impressive. Obviously, his career started long before then. But um, he, yeah, he's left an incredible mark on, on an industry that I think everyone enjoys, whether or not they kind of, you know, really appreciate many of the incredible voices um, and people behind them. And I think Sondheim was certainly one of those people. So yeah, he'll be missed. And and hopefully he's a source of inspiration to everyone that if you haven't quite reached your genius phase yet, uh, just give it some time. (laughs) Because yeah, Sondheim (laughs) is is a good, is a good model.
Yes, and do you see Follies? Because Losing My Mind is the most incredible song. Mm-hmm. And the versions of it as well, like Pet Shop Boys, for example, is and also uh, the, 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 there's so many of his songs have been redone by other people, and mm-hmm. sometimes they get even better. Yasmin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag #BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback; it's really useful. If you enjoy the bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.